Welcome to another episode of Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on spirometry and respiratory care. Your hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager, and Jance Lanier, National Sales Manager and Respiratory Therapist for Vitalgraph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Today, we interviewed Carol Stonham, Executive Chair of the Primary Care Respiratory Society in the United Kingdom. She's the first non-doctor and first female to take the chair. She's also a director of the UK Lung Cancer Coalition and a board member of the UK Inhaler Group and National Asthma and COPD Audit, as well as sitting on the NHS Long-Term Plan Respiratory Delivery Board. Well, welcome, Carol, to our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Delighted to be here. Why don't you give us a little bit about your background on yourself, education, experience, and your current responsibilities? Okay, thank you. So I started my nurse education probably 40, more than 40 years ago now, which makes me quite old. Um, started doing it as an orthopedic nurse and then went on and did my general training. But the majority of my career has been in community care. So I've worked in GP practice for 26 years. So we went from being sort of the nurse that judges they were told to find in our own way and becoming more independent practitioners, which is much more my style of working. Since then, so three years ago, I changed my job again and I now do about four or five different jobs. So I work for our local CCG, that's our clinical commissioning board, giving respiratory advice to the pathway and to, to the different changes we want to make. I am one of NHS England's co-clinical leads for the Southwest and I've got some clinical work that I do as well. And then a big part of my week at the moment is around the Primary Care Respiratory Society where I am executive chair. And that's interesting because there's not been a female executive chair before me and there's not been anybody that wasn't a doctor. And, and as I say, I'm a nurse. So I like to think I've really moved that on, which is great. I've done some extra education along the way. So I've done a master's in respiratory care, for example. I'm an independent prescriber. I've done some leadership training. So I've done quite broad training to keep myself up to date throughout my whole career. Wonderful. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about PCRS, Primary Care Respiratory Society, and what their vision for the future? PCRS is a UK-wide professional society, and our aim really is to support any healthcare professionals working either in or with primary care. So that might be all of your primary care team, it might be the community team, it might be the acute medicine team that work with primary care, but the idea is to support people that are delivering care to patients. And the vision is now and has always been that we help to provide optimal respiratory health for all. And we try and do that through a number of channels. So one of our big part of our work is around influencing policy and setting standards in respiratory medicine and making sure that that's relevant nationally, but also locally where it's being delivered. We have a big focus on educating healthcare professionals in primary and community care settings and thinking about how we deliver out of hospital respiratory care to patients and making sure that it's best practice, evidence based and we've got clinical guidance to support that. We also work on promoting and disseminating real life respiratory research. And research can feel a bit detached from clinical practice sometimes. So a big part of what we do is to try and make that relevant and help people to implement the most recent research in their, their current practice. We think about how we deliver value-based healthcare, making sure that it's clinically effective and it's safe for patients, and that importantly, patients get the best experience of care. And then a big part of what we do is around committing and engaging membership in a network way so that we're all supported and enabling us all to do the best job we can because primary care can be quite a lonely place. So that's sort of where we're at. That vision hasn't really changed. We work towards that the whole time and that underpins everything that we do. Is there a call to action for the PCRS? 
So the call to action for PCOS is to make sure that, as I say, we are delivering optimal respiratory health for all. That's quite a broad statement. So we have lots of programmes of work that underpin that. So we have a programme of work around green respiratory health care, for example. We have a programme of work around overuse of salbutamol in respiratory disease. We have, we're currently working on a new programme. It's entitled Challenging Perceptions in COPD. And this is making people think differently about COPD and being more proactive in the management of it. So that's the way we sort of work this. And then we've got an education committee that's set out our educational parameters. We've got a service development committee that will look at how we influence the way services are provided. Uh, and then we've got a policy forum, and I'm, I'm the chair of policy forum as well as the executive chair, where we really make sure that policy is right to support that under, underlying aim. So the call to action is be active, be involved, be there so that you can actually make a change and improve care. Wonderful. You know, having worked in the States for 15 years, kind of in the respiratory realm, I'd love to hear kind of the UK aspect, especially of how to improve early and accurate diagnosis of lung conditions. So this has been a challenge, and, and I'm sure it's the same all over the world. Within the UK, we've got a, an NHS long-term plan, which is a 10-year plan that sets out how we improve services. And within that, there's a respiratory chapter. And we're working really well and really actively towards raising the profile of respiratory disease when COVID hit. And the difficulty that we found in the UK with COVID is we had to pull back from a lot of the work we were doing. We had to pull back from face-to-face -face consultations with patients. And we pulled back from a lot of the respiratory testing. And the challenge now is to restart that respiratory testing and that whole programme of work so that people actually get back to where we were pre-COVID. I think the other difficulty in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same all around the world, is patient perception. So patients need to realise breathlessness is not normal so that they present to their healthcare practitioner so that they can go along this investigative journey. And in the UK, we're working on community diagnostic hubs. So the idea of this is that we try to clump together a lot of the testing where they're being done by people that are familiar with testing backgrounds so that they're competent in what they do and they're offering a good service. But it's also cutting down on those multiple visits the thing we find is patients come in saying, I'm breathless. They don't come in or they might come in saying, I'm breathless, it's my lungs. But it may or may not be that. And it's, it's also getting people to think more holistically about diagnosis. So thinking that if you find a cause of breathlessness, for example, that might, might not be the only cause of breathlessness. We might need to think a little bit more broadly about our patients. So we're trying to upskill the workforce in respiratory diagnostics, in the skills around diagnosis and provide them with the equipment and the testing that they need. But also, as I say, there's this thing around raising patient awareness. So what are some of the main contributors? I'd be curious, are they a little bit different from here in the US as different parts of the regions of the world? So can, do you mean contributors towards respiratory disease or towards getting this diagnosis? Yeah, through, through, you know, people having respiratory problems and, and allergies. What are some of the contributors that are happening over in the UK? So I think they're probably the same as the rest of the world. So we, we've been working very actively on looking at air pollution, and that's indoor air pollution and outdoor air pollution. And we have NICE guidelines. So then the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. And we have now have NICE guidelines on indoor and outdoor air pollution, for example. One of the big contributors is and always has been, I'm sure will be for a while to come, tobacco smoking. So that's, I think, somewhere where we fall down slightly in the UK in that our treatment of tobacco dependency isn't quite as good as it should be. We've reduced it. We've got 
smoking levels down, but we still have quite a lot of work to do and we need to build those services back up to support that. The other thing we've seen, particularly through COVID, is deconditioning. So we have patients that will come into practice to say that they are breathless and they may have been through a period of inactivity with, with all the lockdowns we've had through COVID, with patients with respiratory disease particularly shielding. They're just not active as, active as active as they used to be and they're suffering from the effects of this. So we can't lose sight of the problem we've, we've got with deconditioning and the fact that we really need to get people back out there, get them active again and get them back to a normal level of activity to maintain their health. Wonderful. You know, you touch on uh, greener respiratory. We kind of talk about some of the consumable pieces that we use that are negative for the environment. Um, should patients be switching to low GWP inhalers or should we change everyone to PMDIs to a DPI? Can we just do blanket switches? And how do we fit this into the consultation when time is already short? Yeah, that's exactly it. Firstly, we need to remember that the inhaler is a part of delivering greener respiratory health care but it's not the, the whole story. And I think the focus has been huge in the UK around moving patients from metadose inhalers to dry powders. And we use an awful lot of metadose inhalers in the UK. If you compare us to a lot of other areas of the world, we're far higher in our MDI prescribing. And it's right that we need to have a focus on this. And it's right that we need to switch our patients to a lower GWP inhaler if that's appropriate for the patient. And I think that's the important thing is it has to be done on an individual basis and it needs to be done with the patient offering and being offered some choice and some sort of say in this whole agenda. Blanket switches are the recipe for disaster because if we switch patients en masse without seeing them, there are a few things that happen. So the first thing is the patient may well disengage. If they're used to one inhaler and you give them something different, they may say, I won't bother using it then. If you switch from an MDI to a dry powder, the inhalation technique is different. And if you don't explain that to a patient, they will switch from one to the other, but not be using it appropriately. So therefore not getting the right amount of medication into their lungs. And for some patients, it's just not appropriate to do that. So particularly the very young, some of the very old, some patients with advanced COPD, for example, you can't just switch patients across without making sure that the patient can use the right technique for that inhaler. But I think the bigger picture with that is, what else can we do to improve the carbon footprint of respiratory care? And it travels the length of the pathway. So if you start from the beginning of a respiratory pathway and look at prevention, we've already talked a bit about prevention, but it's key that we try and prevent as much respiratory disease as we can, then we don't need to be treating it. The next stage is around early and accurate diagnosis. And again, we've, we've talked about this, the difficulty with diagnosis is if we get it wrong and we give somebody a diagnosis, for example, of asthma, when actually they haven't got asthma, we're treating them with medication they don't need and it tends to be lifelong. So we right. need to make sure that the diagnosis is timely and accurate. Then think about routine care. So patient education is key. Respiratory patients really need the skills of self-management, but can't do that on their own. It has to be supported and backed up by education so that they understand why they're doing things they're doing and how they adjust the medication if they need to. Exacerbations, if we can avoid as many exacerbations as is possible, exacerbations themselves have a big carbon footprint because of the increased need for rescue medication subutamol, the increased travel to unscheduled appointment and the risk of hospitalisation and hospitalisation has a big carbon footprint. We then need to think about comorbidities, so make sure that we're treating patients for those things that will impact 
on their respiratory disease to make sure they're as well controlled as possible. We need to think about end of life. And I think we don't think about de-prescribing enough when patients are very elderly and very frail. And it may be that a patient has had a lifelong respiratory diagnosis, but actually is so frail they're barely moving about, so they don't need the bronchodilation. But if it's routine medication, we don't always review that. And there's the risk they could be getting side effects from the medication. And then the last thing I suppose to think about when we go back to the inhalers is how we dispose of the inhalers. And in the UK, we don't have a nationwide recycling programme at the moment. There are some small programmes, but they're not, the coverage isn't great. What we do have is a safe disposal scheme when inhalers are returned to the pharmacy and they're incinerated at high temperature, which is much safer than popping them into landfill. So that's sort of gone off the inhaler bit, but that's the point I wanted to make is actually you need to go off the inhaler bit to make sure you're doing, you're seeing the whole picture. Absolutely. I really appreciate the in-depth there. It's one of those where here at Vitalograph, we preach inhaler training uh, on a daily basis. Just making sure the awareness of, of how to do it properly is key. I think that the study was eight out of 10 inhaler users are using it incorrectly. That's a staggering number. Being in respiratory myself, the first time I used the inhaler trainer that we have, I failed it the first seven or eight times. And I would teach people how to do inhalers and I wasn't doing it right. So it's almost on inhaler technique and training continual, not just one time and then you go home. It's every time you come in, do the test, make sure you're doing it right to ensure that you're getting proper medication. But then you're also right that we go into the deeper effects of the recycling of this. I love the fact that you guys have a recycling program for this here in the States. We kind of, I don't believe we don't, that we do. We yeah. don't have anything like that. Yeah. And to me, you know, we're big on environment. We just celebrated Earth Day here last, last month. month yeah. And everybody pretty much recycles a lot of glass, aluminum, plastic. But this is the first I've heard about recycling inhalers. I mean, that's an easy fix. And I think it's great that you have it set up at your pharmacies because that's where most people go to refill and such. And it'd be a great opportunity to recycle. I think that should be something to look at here in the U.S. I don't think anybody has. So if you wouldn't mind, I do have another question. It's how does education of patients of prescriptions and how do recycle of, or safety dispose of return inhalers help? But then also, if you could give us a link or a website to learn some more research on the recycling techniques in the UK. Okay, I think we're all really good at giving patients prescriptions. We may or may not be good at checking the inhaler technique, as you pointed out, a lot of people do it, but do it very badly. So I think there's room for improvement there. But it is around that whole life cycle of the inhaler. So the companies that manufacture them are, you know, they, they have the greener agenda in their mind. They, they're thinking along those routes. We're thinking about what we prescribe, but we're not thinking about that end part of the life cycle. The unfortunate thing in the UK is the recycling schemes are linked to companies. So they're not necessarily sustainable options. So currently there are two recycling schemes running in the UK. One is really interesting. So one is based in Leicester. It's run by one of the companies and it's a postal recycling scheme. And even though it's run by one of the companies, they will accept inhalers from any company back into the recycling scheme. And they're mm. about to do some evaluation of the program and they're just looking really positive. Now with recycling, the important part of the inhaler to recycle is the gas within the MDI, because that's the part that is most damaging to the environment. But that gas can be recycled into things like air conditioning, refrigeration, for example. So it can be used. And the difficulty is if that goes to landfill and the canisters are crushed, the gas is released into the air, which is absolutely what you want to avoid. 
The aluminium can be recycled as well. The plastics are slightly more difficult because they're considered to be contaminated medical waste. So plastics have a limitation on what they can be recycled for. That being said, they can be recycled into things like new road surfacing, for example. So there is the potential to do that, but the recycling schemes can be quite expensive. We tend to focus on the gases because those are the things that have the highest global warming footprint. But again, if the plastics go into landfill, they do eventually break down and they seep into watercourses, which we, we don't want. We don't want anything contaminated. Currently in the UK, there is a more robust safe disposal scheme, which is when inhalers are returned, as I say, to the pharmacy and they are incinerated at high temperature. So the gases are destroyed at high temperature, they're not released into the environment. The plastics are destroyed, again, not seeping into the waterways. And the energy from that incineration can be harnessed and put back into the national grid. So it can be, the energy itself can be recycled. So I think those are the things we need to be thinking about. But the other thing is the potential of that interaction in the community pharmacy. So if patients are taking their, picking up their new prescriptions and taking their old ones back, there is the potential for their inhaler technique to be rechecked by the pharmacy staff. There's the potential for the pharmacy staff to help them to realise whether or not their inhalers are empty. They don't all have dose counters on. And a lot of metadose inhalers are thrown away with quite a lot of medication still in them. Or the other end of the scale is they're being used when they're actually empty and the patient isn't getting any medication. There's the potential for the community pharmacy to be doing some work around treating tobacco dependency, for example. There's the potential for them to, to be doing a sort of a mini asthma review, doing things like an asthma control test and, and then feeding that back in to the primary care providers. So there is this safe disposal scheme. There are a couple of very small recycling schemes, but it's also the potential around that whole interaction that can help cut down on waste and make the whole system more effective. That's fascinating. I tell you what, we'd really appreciate if you'd forward any type of links about that more. We'll post it on Podbeam and let people know more about this. That's amazing. Hey, I'm going to transition here and talk about Pheno for asthma testing. What is Pheno? We might tell some people that may not know. And how is it done for asthma? Okay, so this is a particular interest of mine. I did some original research on Pheno testing probably about 13 or 14 years ago now. And it's still not mainstream within the UK, but it is becoming that way. So phenol testing is fractional exhaled nitric oxide. So this is a gas. So nitric oxide is a gas that is present in the environment all the time. And we breathe a tiny bit of it all the time, but very small amounts, so parts per billion. But we know that asthma is, the base of asthma is it is an inflammatory condition. So it's an inflammation of the lining of the airways. And in the majority of cases, that inflammation is eosinophilic. So it's caused by eosinophils infiltrating into the membrane. And we know that when this eosinophilic airway inflammation is present, as part of the byproduct of that whole inflammation, there is more nitric oxide made. So there's a direct correlation between eosinophilic airway inflammation and the level of nitric oxide a patient is blowing out. So there's a normal range, as I say, we all breathe a little bit of it out all the time and there are recognized elevated ranges. This isn't a test for asthma. This is a test for, as I say, the inflammation that we associate with asthma. And like all of the tests for asthma, unfortunately, it's not foolproof. So some people will have a diagnosis of asthma, but it will be non-eosinophilic, so they'll have a normal pheno. And some patients that don't have asthma just have a raised pheno. 
And there are often reasons for that. So it can be things like respiratory infection. It can be things like um, active rhinitis. Would it be in the same sort of um, inflammatory process? It can be to do with digestion. So if you've got a patient that eats a lot of leafy green vegetables, for example, for a couple of hours afterwards, they will be producing more nitric oxide. It's a really simple test to do. Wonderful. In the UK specifically, what do you guys do post phenotesting? So you do a phenotest and what's next? And then also to secondary on that, how often should a patient get a phenotest? Okay, so you need to sort of take a step back from that because what we need to do first of all um, is absolutely key to diagnose of asthma is we need to be taking a really good thorough history, which includes family history, includes occupation, includes allergens, triggers, all of those sort of things, so that we've got a feel for whether or not this is asthma. If we feel this is asthma, then ideally what we want to do is to do some objective testing to prove the diagnosis of asthma. And pheno is a part of that diagnosis, that testing sequence. So pheno, we should do before spirometry. So we tend to do pheno and spirometry for a diagnosis of asthma. You need to do pheno before spirometry because if you do spirometry first, you wash out the pheno levels and you get an artificially low result. So pheno test, spirometry test. With the spirometry, we are looking for an obstructive result. If it is obstructive, we want to see if we can reverse that with salbutamol. The difficulty is that a lot of patients, when they come in to tell us that they've had symptoms of asthma, they're not symptomatic on the day they present and their spirometry is normal, but their pheno remains raised. So it's a good marker. So in the UK, our current guidelines suggest we should, again, in the UK, we've got two sets of guidelines just to make life complicated. So the NICE guidelines say all adults that present with a history an examination in keeping with a diagnosis of asthma should have spirometry and pheno. If we're looking at children and young people, so age five to 17, what they're suggesting is that we do spirometry. If the spirometry is obstructive and there's positive reversibility, we don't need to do pheno because that is proof enough. Yep. But if it's not obstructive or there's no reversibility, we add pheno in at that point. So it's part of this whole jigsaw approach to a diagnosis of asthma. Well, this is fascinating. We covered a lot of ground today, and, and I really appreciate you taking time and your busy schedule, and this is amazing. So thanks again for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Excel with Vitalograph. Your hosts are Mark Russell and Jane Lanier. If you love this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on your local hosting platform. Until next time, Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.